0: We're going to Matthew chapter number 4, Matthew chapter number 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up to an exceeding high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to them, all these will I give you if you fall down and worship me. I want you to notice that he showed them all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He showed them what the world looked like without sin. That's what the devil does all the time, doesn't he? He shows you what the circumstance looks like without the sting the the sin and the circumstance, That's how he gets you to do what he wants you to do. He makes you think that it's all roses and gumdrops and all sorts of wonderful things. But there's a sin behind this. He's trying to get Jesus to forget about the sin that's in the world. Because if Jesus could forget about the sin that's in the world, he won't go to the cross to be our savior. Notice what it says now. Then Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Today, unless, of course, the Holy Spirit leads otherwise, I want to conclude our series, Stay Woke, where we are talking about waking up our minds in order to change our lives. And I want to kind of pick it up from where we left off last week. And I realized last week was a snow day for some. By the way, for those of you that made it to church last weekend, you get extra credit in heaven for that, okay? For those of you that missed church last weekend because of the snow You really shouldn't have missed church. The 11 o'clock service, there was nothing wrong with the roads, everything was fine. Y'all are just lazy. No, just plain, just plain, even though it's true. Um, I wanna, I wanna pick up from where I left off last week. Last week we began to talk about One of, if not the most important key to taking back your mind, and that is talking back. Because in order to take back your mind, you have to talk back. And today, I want to just piggyback on that, and I want to talk to you about taking your talk back to the next level. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you make this message clear and relevant and life-changing to every person who hears it and applies it? We pray in Jesus' name, and everybody said, you may be seated. Let me do a quick catch up for those of you that, that weren't here last week, um, because of the snow. Um, and uh, when we come to this text, we find that, uh, Satan is tempting Jesus physically in many ways, uh, same ways that he tempts you and I physically. He tempts us three ways. We looked at it last week. We said through the lust of the flesh, through the lust of the eyes is the second way, and the pride of life. And we said all temptation falls into these three categories. And this is the same game that Satan runs on every single one of us. But, but in Jesus' case, he's tempting him more than just physically. He's also taking him on a mind trip. He's manipulating his mind in order to gain access into his destiny he wants to derail his destiny by gaining access into his mind and you say well where is the mind manipulation in the text well first of all he tells him to turn stones into bread and what he's doing here is he's trying to get jesus to make it through the temptation by tapping into his powers as god he wants him to make wonder bread that was pretty good right there he wants him to turn the stones into bread he wants him to make wonder bread he wants him to use his powers as god to make it through the temptation and you say what's the mind manipulation behind that well remember from earlier in the series we learned that jesus was led of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil the reason why the spirit led him is because jesus had to be tempted and tried at every point and yet remain without sin in order to qualify as our sinless sacrificial savior in other words jesus had to be a sacrificial man if the only reason why jesus made it through the temptation was because he used his powers as god then he wouldn't have been qualified to be a sacrificial man and so when he says to when the enemy says to him turn these stones into bread jesus is woke he 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 realized realizes what's up with what the enemy is trying to do. And so what does he say? He says, man shall not live by bread alone. What's he saying? I know what you're trying to get me to do. I know you're trying to get me to stop operating like a man. And I know you're trying to get me to take on my, or to use my powers as God to make it through this temptation. But if I do that, then I'll disqualify myself from being the savior. So no thanks, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so there's a mind manipulation Behind the physical temptation and the mind manipulation goes even deeper. It's it's in every single one of the temptations because behind every physical temptation, by the way, is always a mind manipulation. What the enemy's trying to get you to do is, is the physical temptation is only part of it. But the what happens in your mind after you fall into temptation is an even bigger part of it. The regret, the shame, the guilt, the feeling like you don't want to serve God anymore, all that kind of stuff. That goes along. That's, that's the end game for the enemy because if he can get into your head, he can derail your life and your destiny. And so he comes to Jesus and he said, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple for it's written. He'll give his angels charge over you, lest you dash your foot against the stone. They'll bear you up in their wings. He's not trying to get Jesus to, to jump to his death. That's not his end game. His end game is to literally have Jesus jump so that Jesus air walks so that jesus puts on his nike airs and just kind of like suspended you know in in the middle of that why because the temple area was one of the most populated areas it was where everybody hung out and in bible times what the jews were looking for from a savior was somebody who got involved in supernatural signs and did things that were kind of like out of the ordinary and one of the things that that want to be Messiah's claimed is that they could fly. And so here was his end game. His end game was Jesus jumps and he airwalks. All of the people see him who are hanging out there airwalking and they put their faith in him as the Messiah. When they do that Jesus becomes disqualified from being the Messiah. You say well why? Well because no longer does he fulfill prophecy. Because the prophecies about the true Messiah was that his own people would reject him. But if Jesus jumps and air walks and his people accept him, he can no longer be the Messiah that he was prophesied to be. And so there's always a mind manipulation behind the physical temptation. And the reason why this is important for us to grasp is because Jesus, therefore, is showing us how to beat the devil at the mind games that the enemy plays with our lives. And, and one of of the ways that Jesus does this, the primary way, and we looked again at this a little bit last week, is Jesus is always talking back. Anytime the enemy says something to Jesus, Jesus says something back. Jesus refuses to allow the enemy to get the last word because he doesn't want those words that the enemy speaks to lodge themselves in their brain. Because words are powerful. And last week, you remember, we looked at the mind-mouth connection. We said that the mood of our mind is determined by the words of our mouth. And this is what science calls the study of neurolinguistics. How the words that we speak affects our brain. How the words that we speak shapes our brain and determines in some ways the cognitive abilities of our brain. And here are some of the things that we said. Again, just catching everybody up. The right words affect our brain's cognitive functioning for better or for worse. The wrong words interrupt the brain's functioning, especially with regard to logic and reasoning and language. The right words, we we looked at, can switch on our brain and the wrong words can switch off our brain. Words affect Genes that regulate emotional and physical stress. Words can change our perception of ourself and others. Words affect how we perceive reality. They have a profound effect on the way in which our brains are shaped and operate and therefore the experiences that we have. Words affect us even at a genetic level, turning the expression of genes on or off for our benefit or our harm, depending upon the words that are, that are spoken. And, and we, we proved all that out. When we looked at neuro linguistics last week. And so if, if words, if our talk back have, has such to do with how our minds work, because that's what the series is all about. How do we, how do we renew our mind? Romans chapter 12, be not conformed to this world, but be a transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can experience that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. How do we do that? There's a connection between the renewing of our mind and the words of our mouth. And so if there is that connection there, what we need to realize is we t- need to take our talk back to the, to the next level. And so how did, how did Jesus do that? And by the way, He spoke only what was written, right? He didn't speak foolishness. He didn't, you know, he didn't get into a, to a, to a carnal war of words. You're ugly, well, so are you. You're fat, well, so are you. You're stupid, well, so are you. Carnal war of words. That, that doesn't, that doesn't get our mind woke. That doesn't help us out any. He he stayed with the word. And, And I want to just give you a little nugget here. When he stayed with the word, it outed the devil. Did you notice that it wasn't until verse number 10, that the devil is referred to as Satan in the temptation. All prior to verse number 10, he's referred to as the devil. We come to verse number 10 after Jesus has stayed with the word and stayed with the word and stayed with the word. He calls him Satan. Devil means accuser. Satan means adversary. And so what happened was that he stayed with the word and he realized that satan was more than just somebody was making an accusation he was an adversary in other words an opponent somebody standing in the way of the destiny and the plan that god had for him and here's the takeaway for us if you stay with the word and stay with the word and stay with the word you will out the enemy suddenly you will wake up to what's going on you'll realize what the end game is you'll see behind the sin you'll see behind the sinister plot but you got got to stay with the word. If you move off the word, you get all screwed up. And so how do you take your talk back to the next level? Three ways I want to give you. Number one, you need to talk back accurately. Notice that the devil and Jesus were in a war about what was written. And you know, Satan would quote a portion of scripture out of context, although he quoted it exactly by what it said but it was just out of context right so throw yourself down to give his angels charge over you they'll bear you up in your wings in their wings lest you dash your foot against the stone then jesus would turn around it's also written that uh you should not put the lord your god to a foolish test and so there's this war of uh, about what is is written and 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 here's the thing we need to understand not just what is written but what it means because if we, if we only know what is written, but we don't have any idea what it means, we cannot talk back accurately. And if we don't talk back accurately, we lose the power that the Word of God has to both rebuff and rebuke the enemy in our lives and renew our mind. And, and we looked last week and we said in passing that we can pull scriptures out of context, make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. Right? I told you last week I can prove to you that, that, that Moses played tennis. Because the Bible says he served in Pharaoh's court, right? I can prove to you that the disciples, they, they like to drive Hondas because the Bible says in Acts 2, they were all in one place and in one accord, right? I can prove to you that that David had a motorcycle because the Bible says his triumph was heard throughout the entire land, right? I, I can prove to you that there are no women in heaven because the Bible says there was silence around the throne of God for 30 minutes. Just, just, just playing with y'all. Just, just, just playing with y'all, right? <laughs> you, you can, you can lift. Somebody said, "Yeah, there's no <laughs> preachers in heaven either." Then, right? Uh, you can lift any scripture out of context that you want to lift out of context. Make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And so what happens is when you don't understand what it means, you lose the ability to quote it accurately. If you're not quoting it accurately, it doesn't have the same power. How do you know how do you understand what the scripture means? Well, Second Timothy verse number, chapter two, verse 15 says, Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, if you don't study, you, you can come away with the wrong understanding of what is written and what, it, what, what is meant by what is written. Incidentally, do you know the way that Jesus learned the scripture? And I don't know if you just caught what I said, because that's kind of like, Jesus learned the scripture. I thought Jesus wrote the scripture. Right? All, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good things. It's inspired, given by God himself, wasn't Jesus God. So isn't that the reason why Jesus knew the Bible is because he was God? No. When Jesus came to earth, he laid aside his ability to operate as an all-powerful God and also as an all-knowing God, and he operated 100% as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus learned the Scripture by studying the Scripture. Now, if you think that's just me making it up, I'll show you in the Scripture that this is true. Luke chapter 2, verse number 40, speaking of Jesus, says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. How do you grow in wisdom if you have all wisdom to begin with? It's impossible. But Jesus applied himself. Luke chapter 2 verse number 46 says, Now it was that after three days, Jesus kind of when he was 12, he wandered off. His parents couldn't find him. They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. What was Jesus doing? He was applying himself to make sure that he got understanding of the word. He, He was going to Bible study. He, he was going to small group and he was, he was breaking down the word and he was going to discipleship and he he's asking questions and he he's making sure that he puts as much of the word of God in him so that as a man, he has the word of God in him. He is the word, but yet he laid aside his ability to know the word because he was the word and he learned it as a man. Luke chapter 2, verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. You can't increase in something if you've got it all to begin with. If Jesus needed to study, to understand the word, to know the word accurately, how much more do you and I need to apply ourselves in order to know the word? If you don't study the word, Satan will make you ashamed. Study to show yourself approved. A workman that needed not to be ashamed if you don't know the word of god better than the devil and the devil will quote the word of god the devil will quote it and quote it and quote it but you need to understand what it means because here's what he will do if he can't get you to disregard scripture he will get you to misunderstand scripture most christians aren't going to buy into the whole well that's the bible you know it's from years ago it's not really accurate it's kind of outdated it's not culturally relevant most christians are not going to buy into that right but what some Christians will do is they'll think they are living by a scripture that they misunderstand. And those are the worst kind of Christians to deal with. Because they become arrogant in their ignorance. I'll give you an example. I ran into somebody. I once was just church, all, all the pastor, everything. And I said, hey, man, what's going on, man? How you been? Well, you know, I don't go to church no more. Well, why don't you go to church no more? Well, because I don't believe in organized religion anymore. Because the Bible says they met from house to house in the Bible. So we don't need to have churches. Is that true? So I forgot about Revelation where Jesus talks to the seven churches. Churches forgot about that, right? You you forgot about the fact that, that there was a council assembled in the book of Acts where all the disciples and apostles came together to decide what they would hold the people accountable for. And then James, who was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, stood up. And, and he gave his final verdict for how things should go down. You forgot about that scripture too, right? You, you forgot about the scripture that said he'll give you pastors after his own hearts. He, he, he forgot about the scripture in Ephesians, which, which says that he's given some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints until we all come into you. You forgot about all that, but you got your one little, I didn't tell him all this, obviously, right? You got, your, you got your one little scripture that you lifted out of context to support what you wanted the Bible to say. See, what the devil will get you to do if he can't get you to disregard the Word of God is he'll get you to misunderstand the Word of God because if you don't have accuracy in your talk back, it has absolutely no power. You remain in your deception. And so what... What God wants us to understand is we need to know what the, what the word means. Matter of fact, they would try to trip Jesus up oftentimes, right? The Pharisees and they would ask him a a, a question. Here's what Jesus' response would be. How do you read it? I I know what you're after right here. Well, well, don't just give me, don't just quote the scripture to me. Tell me, tell me how you're reading that particular thing. What's your, here's what he's saying. What's your understanding? What's your interpretation? How do you interpret scripture? Well, first of all, you interpret scripture based on sometimes you gotta do a little exegete on the text. Sometimes you gotta get involved and you gotta find out what the original meaning was in the words. But, but more often than not, in light of other scripture. If your interpretation contradicts other scripture, you got the wrong interpretation. I'll give you an example. We, we live in the, and you've heard me say this before, we leave, live in the don't judge me generation. Right? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. I hate that. It bothers me. That's why it bothers me. Well, the Bible even says don't judge. That's the, that's the scripture that the devil has given to the don't judge me generation to help them to be arrogant in their ignorance so they can live any way they want. Right? But here's my question: What does that mean? Don't judge me. Does it does it mean do never point out right from wrong? It can't possibly mean that. Why? Well, Matthew eighteen chapter five, uh, Matthew eighteen verse number fifteen says: Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. How can I tell somebody their fault if I can't ever tell somebody from, if I can't ever point out right and wrong? Then, then there's no fault. That's just whatever, whatever floats your boat, right? Second Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is use is given by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and instruction in righteousness. How can I correct if I can't point out what's right and what's wrong? C- can you see how distorted lifting a text out of context? Isaiah verse number five, cha- uh, chapter, tw- chapter number five, verse number 20 says, woe to those who call Evil good and good evil. How, how can, how can that be true if don't judge me means don't ever tell me right and wrong? Don't ever tell me what's evil and what's not evil. How could that possibly be true? So here's the question. Yes, the Bible says don't judge me, but what does it mean? Let's look at it for a second. Matthew chapter seven, verse number one. Judge not that you not be judged. For with what judgment you judged, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Hmm, What's that mean? It means don't live your life being one of those Christians who are more concerned with what's going on and what's wrong in everybody else's life. And don't give a rip about how your relationship with God is. It's talking about focus. It's talking about don't be one of those Christians. Well, that's sin and that's sin and that's sin and that's sin. And you go to hell and you go to hell and you go to hell and you go to hell. Meanwhile, I mean, there there are Christians who do crazy stuff. There are Christians that want to, you know, get everybody together. You know, let's, hey, let's come on, let's let's give the Lord a praise. Meanwhile, they're shacking up with people, and they don't understand how that hurts their testimony, right? Everybody knows this is the way they're living. They're trying to tell everybody, well, you know, you you really ought to live right. You really, and people are going, yeah, yeah, but yeah, 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 but here's what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying, be more concerned with your own relationship with God. Be more concerned with making sure that you're living right with God than pointing out everybody's issues in their life. But here's what it does say. It does say that when you focus on you, then you can go and help a brother or a sister to remove the speck from their eye that's the last portion of the verse but it's talking about priority it's talking about not looking to put people to shame but genuinely wanting to help somebody get through a certain situation if you see a brother or sister the bible says overtaken into fault those of you who are spiritual go to such a one and restore them right how do you restore them if you never get to the point where you could show them the error of their way how do you read it in order for your talk back to be taken to the next level you've got to talk back accurately you've got to understand what the word of God means you've got to take responsibility to learn the word of God even though it is my assignment to teach you on the weekends the word of God it is not my responsibility to make sure that you know the word of God that's your responsibility That takes effort on your part. Because here's why. I can come on the weekend and I can be ready to teach you the word of God, but you didn't take the responsibility of coming to church. And because you didn't take the responsibility of coming to church because it snowed at at 11 (laughs) o'clock. Then all of a sudden, what happens is, is you missed understanding that you may have needed for that particular day. We've got to talk back accurately. By the way, I wasn't harping on the snow thing last night. i just going with it today, right? <laughs> Second way you take your talk back to the next level is you talk back assuredly, assuredly. By the way, since I mentioned the snow thing far too many times already, we did also encourage everybody to come Saturday night, you know, so just to give you no excuse to miss if it's snowed on Sunday. Anyway, Second way, second way that we take our talk back to the next level is we talk back assuredly. Not just accurately, but assuredly. With every it is written that Jesus talked back, don't you get this overwhelming sense of the conviction in which Jesus spoke with? Do you When you hear Jesus say, it is written, do you hear a wimpy voice? Do you hear a, well, you know, um, it's written, uh, man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? Is that the way you hear Jesus talking back what is written? Or do you hear this this strong conviction? In his voice, this cadence, this authority, when they heard Jesus speak, they said they, they never heard somebody would talk with so much authority. Authority is conviction, belief behind what you are saying, something that you can't feign or fake, but something that's coming from your soul. Matter of fact, what makes, for instance, the communication of the gospel effective is if the deliverer of the gospel has conviction about what they're saying. And that's why it's so important for a deliverer of the gospel not just a preacher but any deliverer of the gospel that could be me that could be you because you're called to deliver the gospel to a lost world to make sure that your life is right because if your life ain't right you'll lose conviction in what you're saying this is why preaching real good this morning this is why sometimes when we share the gospel with our friends it has no effect there's no power because there's no conviction behind it. The reason why there's no conviction is because there's sloppy, you know, that we used to call back in the day, sloppy agape. Right? Where, where we use the love of God and the grace of God to excuse the behaviors in our life. Oh, God will love me anyway. We don't realize the power that is lost in our testimony, the conviction in what we're saying. Jesus was talking back with Conviction. Contrast that to the sons of Shiva, in in Acts chapter number nine. You remember them? They were the, these 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 kind of brothers, and they were all checking. Paul was going around, and he was he was preaching the gospel, and he was healing people and casting out demons, and and doing miracles in the name of Jesus. And these sons of Shiva, the Bible says, I think that they, they were exorcist, and they decided that they wanted to, to 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 give what Paul was doing a whirl. How many of you know? Giving the gospel a whirl. Giving it just like a off the cuff try without any conviction, not going to produce anything, right? So they give it a whirl, and, and they 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 find somebody that's that's demon possessed, right? And, and they the Bible says they call over them, and they say in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, we adjure you to come out. Now I don't know about you, but when I hear them do that, I don't hear conviction. I, I kind of hear them kind of like. In the name of Jesus, that that guy over there, Paul preaches, come on out. And 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 there's no conviction. And because there's no conviction, because there's no assurance in what they say, the Bible goes out in in the rest of the story, I think it's around verse 15 or so, is they said the man in whom the evil spirit was, or the evil spirit in the man that they try to cast out, jumped on them, said he he beat them up, and he caused them to flee naked. Not only beat them up, he pantsed them. You know the Bible back in the day when you wanted to really embarrass somebody, you know, you never do this when you were a kid, you pants them, you know, like you know, you'd be playing basketball, you got your gym shorts off, somebody come behind you and you just embarrass them right there. That's what the enemy did to them because they had no assurance in their voice. Study to show yourself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed the enemy will pants you the enemy will cause shame to come on you if you don't not only talk back accurately but talk back assuredly there's got to be conviction in your voice you got to believe that what you're saying how do you get to a place where you actually have assurance in what you're saying you got to understand the person behind the promise This is why most Christians have no assurance in speaking the word of God. Because their relationship with the person behind the promise is not strong enough to trust the promise despite the circumstances. So here's what happens. If I meet a stranger and a stranger gives me a promise, I don't know that I'm going to bank my whole life on that. Stranger walks up to me and says, "Hey, I want you to meet me at uh, you know six o'clock tonight because uh, I just felt you know like I wanted to give you a million dollars." I'm not so sure I'm even showing up because to me that seems like a setup. I don't have confidence in that person. I don't know the person behind that promise. But when you know the person behind a promise, suddenly you're able to to, address, to to understand whether that promise is reliable or not, right? There are some people you're in a relationship with for a long time. They tell you they'll be there at 7. You know they ain't showing up at 7. You know? You ever get around people like that? And, and the worst thing you could do is count on them being there at 7 because they said they're going to be there at 7 even though they got a whole history of not being there at 7 and then you back another appointment up at 7.30 thinking that they'll be, be there at 7, right? And, and you know those people I'm talking about, right? And, and they get there, they're like 20 minutes late and they come running in like they're the busiest person in the world. <sighs> something came up. How come something always comes up with you? Right? So you, you understand... The, what the promise based on the person behind the promise? And here's what we got to get to. We got to get to a place in our relationship with God that our relationship with God is so good that it's so tight that we understand that when God says something, it is yes and it is amen. That that's my daddy that said it. That's my father that said it. That's the God who cannot lie that said it. This is God who said it. So I can talk with assurance about the promise. Conviction about the promise. Listen to what Jesus said. Mark chapter 11, verse 22. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes those things which he says will be done, he will have, she will have, whatever they say. What is the dividing line? What is the difference maker? The difference maker is not simply speaking what is written. The difference maker is being assured. That what you're saying has the power to accomplish whatever it is that God wants to see come to pass in your life. It's the assurance to know that God watches over his word waiting to perform. It's the assurance that you know that God has exalted his word even above his name. That his word is his name. That if God says it, that settles it. And you need to go with it and believe it with expectation and absolute confidence. But you can't fake that. You can't can't just make yourself get to that place. There's only one way to get to that place. And that is through relationship with Almighty God. Let me give you the science behind what I'm saying to you. University of College London's Dr. Scott explains how words function and process within our brain. Speaking assuredly. That's what we're talking about. The brain takes speech It separates it into words and melody, the varying intonation in speech that reveals mood, gender, and so on. Words are then shifted over to the temporal lobe for processing while the melody is channeled to the right side of the brain, a region stimulated by music. So here's what happens is that when, when you hear words, your brain sorts them. Sorts them based on intonation. Intonation is a form of conviction. So if I say to you, hey, you know, um, I really feel great. Your brain is going to move that one. If I say, I'm feeling great today, your brain is going to move it to a different place. Sorts it based on intonation. The new research is groundbreaking because it explains why the rhythm... And the intonation of a person's voice affects us on such a deep emotional level. There's a reason why we get two very different reactions when we listen to something like Dr. Martin Luther King give a speech in comparison to an average person read aloud his I Have a Dream speech. The strong and melodic manner of speaking that Dr. King gave on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial instills a sense of awe and admiration in people listening. The content of his words was only half of the magic that allowed his speech to touch millions, the other being the intonation and the rhythm in which he spoke those famous words, I have a dream. What is it saying? It's saying that when Dr. King spoke, he spoke with conviction. He spoke with authority. This wasn't something that he heard somebody say. And was going to parrot back to the masses. Because if all he was was a parrot. He couldn't have the passion behind what he was saying. See passion is the result of something becoming personal in your life. Where there is no passion. All you are is a parrot. But when God has done something for you. When you have a relationship with God. You are no longer a parrot. You have passion in declaring that promise. And that passion. What it does is it affects how your brain sorts things. And because your brain is sorting things, that's why it's so important to talk back, not just accurately, but talk back assuredly. Third and final thing I want to share with you. Talk back relentlessly. Talk back relentlessly. Every time Jesus what the devil talked to Jesus' mind with something negative or untrue or destructive. Jesus talked back with the truth of the Word of God relentlessly. There wasn't like Jesus, there was, there was no hesitation. Like, like Jesus was on it quick. By the way, that's why it's so important to get the Word in you, right? You know, sometimes you ain't got time to think, hmm, what does the Bible say? See, sometimes what needs to ha- happen is, is that as soon as the devil prods you or pokes you, a promise comes out. For every poke, you ought to have a promise. It, it ought to be, it ought to be that quick. It ought to be instantaneous. Boom promise. Boom promise. Boom promise. He'll stop poking you after a while. Cause he knows he's no match for those promises. Right, And so, Jesus talked back relentlessly. Jesus was practicing, Ephesians chapter 6, when you've done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. In other words, the center, we talked about this, of where I stand. I don't stand on my own merits. I don't stand on the merits of somebody else. I take my stand on, on the word of God. Standing, standing. Standing on the promises that cannot fail. Standing on the promises when life self, Standing on the promises of God. You you take your stand there. That's where you you need to make sure that your, your 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 profession is on the promises and from the promises. Now, listen to the this article, and let me give you the science behind talking back relentlessly, constantly talking back what is written. If I were to put your your Brain under an MRI scanner, a huge, you know, the huge donut magnet that can take a video. And here's what it takes: it takes a video of the neural changes happening in your brain. That's what they're looking for. And you were to flash the word "no" for less than one second, you'd see a sudden release of dozens of stress-producing hormones and neurotransmitters. These chemicals immediately interrupt the normal functioning of your brain, impairing logic, reason, language processing, and communication. In fact, seeing a list of negative words for a few seconds will make a highly anxious or depressed person feel worse. And the more you ruminate on them, the more damage that you can actually do to key structures that regulate your memory, feelings, and emotions. Let me just pause. You hear a series of negative words. You ruminate on them. You play them over and over in your mind. That causes brain damage that's what, that's what that just said. Now watch this. Um, and then it, it goes on and it says you'll disrupt your if you do that, if you ruminate on them, you'll disrupt your sleep, you'll disrupt your appetite and your ability to experience long-term happiness and satisfaction. How true is that how many How manys ever lost sleep because you just keep thinking on what somebody said, right? And I like the way it said, you'll disrupt your sleep and your appetite. And I'm thinking, I, I gotta figure this out right here, right? I gotta figure this out. And here's the thing, my wife, if you say something negative to her, she don't eat. She like goes on a hunger strike. You know? You say something negative to me, I'm going shopping. I mean, let's go. Get get, get me to Costco. I got to get some food, right? And so it disrupts your your sleep, your appetite, and your level of long-term happiness and satisfaction. Watch this. If you vocalize your negativity... Or even slightly frown when you say no more stress chemicals will be released, not only in your brain, but in the listener's brain as well. The listener will experience increased anxiety and irritability, thus undermining cooperation and trust. In fact, just hanging around negative people will make you more prejudiced towards others. Here's what that basically said, that, that when you are constantly negative, you impair not only your ability to understand, but the person who's listening to you's ability to understand you. Have you ever heard them say before, like, when you're gonna, like, if you're a boss or a leader and you're gonna, you're gonna, uh, do a review for somebody, you know how you're supposed to do that, right? You're supposed to start positive, then you're supposed to give the constructive criticism, and then you're supposed to end positive. Why? Because if you start negative, the person's brain shuts down. This is, this is good for any arena of life. Is that's why how we say stuff it's just as important as what we say. It's not just the content of the message, but it, but it's the delivery of that message. And watch this. Any form of negative re-rum- rumination, that's the word, rumination. Any form of negative rumination that's playing it over and over again. Worrying about, for instance, your financial health or future will stimulate the release of destu- destructive neurochemicals. Negative thinking is also self-perpetuating. And the more you engage in negative dialogue, the more difficult it becomes to stop. So, so let me just stop there again and say this. What do we do when something goes in a way that we don't like? We try to find somebody... That we can have an extended conversation about that negative experience with that will agree with our perspective. Isn't this what we do? And, And by doing that, what we are doing is we are implanting that negative process that came from words into our mind, making it harder for our brain to work the way that God wants it to work, making it harder for us to practice the behaviors of Christianity that God has asked us to, namely forgiveness. Because when somebody does something to you, Or when something happens that you don't like and you find somebody who'll agree with your perspective of the situation and then you talk about that whole situation and what the person did, it becomes virtually impossible for you unless you redo that whole process to operate in the way that God wants you to. And even if these fearful thoughts are not real other parts of your brain like the thalamus and amygdala react negative react to negative fantasies as though they were actually threats occurring in the outside world in order to interrupt this natural propensity several steps can be taken first ask yourself the question is the situation really a threat to my personal survival usually it is it is not and the faster you can interrupt the Amalvila's reaction to an imagined threat, the quicker you can take action to solve the problem. Not only ask is it a is it a threat to your survival? Ask does it really matter? Sometimes we get so upset about certain things. Does it really matter? Does does? It, I know why my wife is always squeezing that toothpaste from the middle of the toothpaste. <laughs> Instead of getting aggravated, does it really? Matter. Right? I don't know why my husband is always leaving that toilet seat up. Does not really matter? I suppose if you fall in the middle of the night it matters, right? But, but does it really matter? Right? See, interrupt. The negative flow, interrupt the stuff that you are spending useless and precious energy on by asking the right questions because you'll also reduce the possibility of burning permanent negative memory into your brain. After you have identified the negative thought, which often just operates below the everyday consciousness level of your brain, you can refu- re- reframe it by choosing to focus on positive, excuse me, words and images. The result, anxiety and depression decrease and the number of unconscious negative thoughts decline. When doctors and therapists teach patients to turn negative thoughts and worries into positive affirmation, here's why they do it. The communication process in the brain improves and the patient regains self-control and confidence. But there's a problem. Listen carefully because this is going to seem contradictory to the word, but it's not. But there's a problem. The brain barely responds to our positive words and thoughts. They're not a threat to our survival, so the brain doesn't need to respond as rapidly as it does to negative thoughts and words. Watch this. Here's what this means. When you hear a negative thought or a negative word, what happens is God has hardwired you to protect yourself against the brain damage that that does. So what your brain does is it goes into protection mode when you hear those things. Whereas when you hear something positive, because it's not a threat to your survival, your brain doesn't react as quickly to it. What, is that, what does that mean? Here's what it means. To overcome the neural basis for negativity, we must repetitiously and consciously generate as many positive thoughts as we can. In other words, we need to talk back relentlessly. We need to generate Listen to this. This this blew me away. At least three positive thoughts and feelings for each expression of negativity. If you express fewer than three, the reframing is likely to fail. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you asked me three times. Jesus said, "I know. I asked you three times. I created your brain. I'm trying to unbrainwash you, Peter. I'm trying to get you to a place where the enemy does not have no foothold in your brain. Because whenever negativity comes your way, whenever thoughts that are opposed to God comes your way, you got to talk back. But not just talk back. You got to talk, talk back and talk back and talk back and talk back and talk back relentlessly. Relentlessly." because if you don't it won't work. Now watch this. And I got I got to end with this cuz this service got to get out of here. <laughs> Listen to what God says to Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1 verse number 8. He says this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. All what we thought if if I if I just uh you know claim a promise at the moment that I'm praying and then forget about it, that everything is going to be fine in my life. Is that what that scripture says? It says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate. Notice, mouth, meditate. Mouth, meditate. Mouth, mind. Words, brain. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day. And night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. Here's what God is saying. Here are the tools you need to live the destiny that I've designed. Here, here are the tools right here. I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to tell you how to work them. I'm going to tell you how they produce. But here's what God is saying. But the responsibility of working the word is not on me. The responsibility of working the word is on you. You've got to keep the word of God in your mouth. And you've got to keep the word of God in your mind. Because there's a mouth-mind connection. And if you'll keep him in both places, guess what will happen? The enemy will not be able to get a chance or get a foothold in your brain and in your life. And you'll fulfill your destiny. That's what God is saying. What I think is really interesting about what God says to Joshua is God knows Joshua is going into the promised land. He knows that in the promised land, there are going to be giants there. Remember Joshua sent out, Moses sent out the spies. Joshua was one of them. Comes back, everybody else. Focusing on the giants. Remember we talked about this. Joshua focuses on the grapes. God knows he's going back. And when he goes back, he's going to see giants. And when he sees giants, Satan is going to say something. Satan speaks through giants. Whenever you see a giant in your life, I guarantee you you're hearing something in your head. You're hearing, going to kill you. You're not going to make it. Bigger than you, stronger than you, tougher than you. That's the way life always is. You just have to grunt it and bear it. Whenever you see a giant, Satan is going to say something. And here's what God says to Joshua He says, Listen, in order to get this promised land, listen to me, in order to get what God has, you've got to be comfortable dealing with giants. There's no such thing as an easy destiny. There's so, no such thing as a calling without a cup. There's no such thing as a victory without a vice. There is no such thing. You, you gotta get to the place where you're comfortable in the atmosphere of giants. You gotta be like a Dallas Cowboy when it comes to giants. Beating them not just once, but twice, right? You, you got you gotta be comfortable dealing with giants because the giants are going to say something to you and whenever the giants say something to you here's what God says you've got to say something back but not just once you've got to keep the word of God in your mouth you've got to say it and 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 say it. you've got to be relentless if you're going to receive the promised land that God has for you and that requires you to talk back accurately and assuredly and then you can talk back relentlessly and this is how you get the word to produce for you in your life it's not just a matter of being a parrot it's a matter of having a conviction about the promise would you stand to your feet